Mary is out of the hospital and joins us today as we interview constitutional law professor David Schwartz and talk about why bands playing an entire album is awesome. All this and more on The Let's Game. Hi, I'm Robin Renee, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hi, I'm Mary McGinley. And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and I want to welcome Mary back. Hi, Mary. I'm so happy Hi. that you're Hi, back. Hi, Mary. It's good Hi. to hear you. <laughs> um, and today is the 20th of November, which is National Absurdity Day. Uh, oh, that's I think a good one. Yeah, I, I think honestly, I, I would I would make the last two or three years absurdity year, the absurdity days. <laughs> it's just everything's been absurd. Uh, it's also Universal Children's Day on the twentieth, yeah. and that's um, to help children. It's to make it's an awareness kind of a day for children who are you know in poverty or being trafficked or in or cages in cages yes it's mm -hmm. for chill you know for the rights of the child um and then the 21st is national stuffing day and the great american smoke out so ah. that's been going on for decades yeah, yeah it's great if that can motivate people to give it a try to quit that's that's awesome Yes. Yeah. And now they have to get the little uh, pre the teenagers off of the jewel. <laughs> yeah, that's another yeah, yeah, weirdness. Um, and the twenty second is the anniversary of the JFK assassination. Uh, that's John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was our president, mm -hmm. um, and also the title of a pretty intense Stephen King book that was very long but very exciting to read. Mm -hmm. uh, the twenty third is National Adoption Day. And I believe that's Adopt for people her. and not, yeah. it's adopting people and not pets. Uh, yeah. Although pets can be adopted at any time. And I think this is occur encouraging people to adopt older children who are like in the foster system. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the ones who, who are overlooked a lot. Oh, um, that's beautiful. That's good. And uh, on the 25th is National Blase Day. And, oh, um, I, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've been asked to, to mention that uh, I remembered without having to look up what the, the code is to get the E with the accent on, my, uh, <laughs> on our note cards. So Very I was cool. proud of myself. My name has that character in it, so I am familiar with it. <laughs> but that's cool. <laughs> And on the 25th is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, yes, that needs let's, to happen. Let's hope that will do some good. Yes, let's hope so. There's birthdays. There's uh, on the 20th is Joe Biden's birthday. Happy birthday, Joe Biden. It was also... Um, Robert 
F. Kennedy's birthday, and he's no longer with us, of course. Uh, he died in 1968. On the he 20- was killed. Yeah, <laughs> and he died. He was killed. He died from being killed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, let's see, on the 21st is Goldie Hawn. Happy birthday. Sorry, a friend is trying to text me about my cat. I don't know why. This particular moment, she has to get an answer. Um, <laughs> and uh, let's see, Goldie Hawn and Bjork. And I'm very proud of you for finding the umlaut for Bjork. <laughs> yeah, that one yeah. I had to look up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, on the 22nd is Billie Jean King's birthday. And yeah, I, I love her. really want to uh, say to young women out there, look up who Billie Jean King is. You know, she's important. And yeah. uh, Scarlett Johansson, happy birthday. And Ted Jones, your brother. Yes, happy birthday, yeah. Ted. I don't yeah. think you listen, but I'm going to say happy birthday anyway. <laughs> yeah, anybody related to Robin is all right in my book. Uh, <laughs> on the 23rd is Miley Cyrus's birthday. And on the 24th was Scott Joplin's birthday. He was from 1868 to 1917. I love his music. I have uh, the maple leaf rag stuck in my head. Because oh, I, yeah. I no, I I learned that was when I take took started taking adult piano lessons. That was uh, one of my assignments, and I can kind of struggle through it still. So yeah, um, I learned the entertainer. I get, I think it's standard, you know, for piano <laughs> lessons. <laughs> the the one that I remember, I think it was called Tennessee Tootaloo. I know that one. Yeah, it's. I always imagine a ballet of spiders on mirrors. <laughs> For that one. Let's see. Uh, on the 25th was John F. Kennedy Jr.'s birthday, who left us too soon in 1999. And uh, on the 26th, J- DJ Khaled. Is that how you say it? That's right. Okay. <laughs> yep. okay. Happy birthday, everybody. Happy and, birthday. Uh, up next is all the news we can handle. Okay, all the news we can handle. Uh, I have been out of it for two weeks. I've had major crises all over the place, including being in the hospital and having major surgery and writhing in pain for 10 days. But uh, So I haven't been listening to the news. So people tell me what's going on. Honestly, you would be, it's probably not going to help your recovery to know what's been going on. Um, now impeachment is, is moving along. Um, and, uh, I think Robin wants to start with, uh, the, the girls in STEM, right? Yeah. We talked about this on our video broadcast, which um, you can see on Facebook still and watch yeah, she can get progressively drunk. Yeah, that's part of the fun. (laughs) It was definitely fun, and um, yeah, there is for the Broadcom Master STEM competition, the first time in history that all girls were winners. These are um, all the winners were girls. Yes, Yes. that's that's what I meant. I'm not getting progressively (laughs) drunk at the moment, but somehow I sound like it. No, Um, (laughs) yes, all all top five. 
prizes went to girls this time and it was it was uh I just thought it was a cool thing to happen because we we actually broadcast our um our video on um stem steam day so it was really appropriate news for that day and it's just, it's still just really great um the winners did things from um making vehicles safer by removing blind spots and doing work toward that to trapping invasive insects to protect trees and agriculture um making bricks on mars sounded yeah. amazing so yeah there's um just a lot of really innovative uh thoughtful young girls out there winning winning awards in stem so i thought that was cool well i thought also doesn't this con this prize include like scholarship money for college yes I, yes this, um okay. well the top award i think was twenty five thousand dollars there were some ten thousand dollar prizes yeah. wow so that's really that's really yeah. really noticeable yeah and i keep wondering if this is the thing that used to be called the westinghouse prize that was then taken over by Intel and, and, and it could be this thing now. I don't remember mm -hmm. now. Um, mm -hmm. It used to, I, all I remember was when I was in school, it was the Westinghouse prize and, you know, it was a very, and usually it was like the, like Bronx high school of science would run away with, you know, 60% of the prizes that they gave out usually, you know, like the big, oh. the big, uh science high schools would get all the would win all the, the awards um mm -hmm. and this is and it's very cool to see see the the girls and the women coming up with this and and getting noticed and mm -hmm. winning things mm -hmm. i like that mm -hmm. yes and uh i read this morning when we were recording this that uh in a small town in idaho one of the library patrons at their local library is busy hiding all of the anti-trump books and also books about uh women's suffrage and gun rights and lgbtq issues um and they know this now because uh there was a note in one of the misshelved books to the librarian saying I'm doing this on purpose and I'm not going to stop. So wow. they don't know who it is yet. I hope they find the culprit. Uh, Apparently I've... the library had a ha uh, history of having this happen there too. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, he I'm seeing here that one of the other topics they hid was the impact of misdemeanor prosecutions on people of color. Yeah. Uh, so anything that talks about that, oh, can't read that. No, yeah. it's like any so. progressive book or or book about an issue that yeah. Trump is doing uh, yeah. is getting hidden in the library. Um, yeah, well, you know, in a way, I'm I'm thinking that to be have your book be hidden is is a badge of honor. You know, <laughs> so it it would I think it would work in reverse. Even though it's difficult to find the books now because they're not shelved correctly. It would make me want to read that book. Wow, that book book must really say say some good things that somebody went to all the trouble to hide it. So yeah. I'm going to I'm going to pound this uh, library down until I find that book. Yeah. You know what? If if I was the librarian, I uh, I would seriously consider having a special display right by the circulation desk saying these are the books that somebody doesn't want you to read yeah. exactly put them yeah. all right there and then they can't hide them because the librarian will see them moved yeah right, you know yeah. i i think are you listening uh 
I don't. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and you know, and banned books. I know that some people have, have do this displays of like historically banned books. You know, oh, yeah, during and they're still books. read through the ages because of that. Yeah. you know. Yes, so. yes, yes. They're yeah, banned books week. They do that. Um, but I think I think this particular library, when they find these books misshelved, and mm -hmm. they realize this is why that they just need to put them up front and say, hey, these are the books that somebody doesn't want you to read. So. Um, there's your solution. And then, and then also put like a, a, a security camera on it so you can see who's going to move the books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then other uh, frustrating news, YouTube has just announced that uh, they've announced some new terms of service and they were pretty hidden, you know, like the, the changes and everything, but a lot of artists and um, entrepreneurs and just people who want to, use YouTube like as, as they've been are upset because as of December 10th, YouTube says it can delete your account if you're not commercially viable. Oh, what? So, you That's know, like I mean, antithesis of YouTube. Well, yeah, it's been growing that it's, you know, it's has more, a lot more content that is money making and like people with like huge followings and things like that. Um, so I guess as they get more monetized, they want to make space for more opportunity to monetize. Um, I don't know what it's going to mean in terms of in reality. You know, it could be one of those clauses where they say, like, we could use your photograph for anything in perpetuity, but they mostly don't. But they kind of want that written in there. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen contracts like that, which, yeah. you know, it sucks, but it's not. It's yeah, not an immediate effect, you know. So I don't know. I don't know. I know a lot of people are tweeting their displeasure about this, and um, yeah, because we'll commercially viable is a very nebulous term, right? Um, but I could also see them using this to get rid of um, hate speech. Hmm. That's true. You know? I mean, they, they, it could be used for good, but it could also be used for evil. Um, right, right. Even though Google has as their, well, I don't know, is, is their motto still don't it's, be evil? It used to be. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's true anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so some people who have been making a little bit of a livelihood on YouTube enough that matters to them that might not matter to YouTube, that could be a problem. Or as you say, you know, Maybe it can get rid of some stuff we don't, we would hope not to be out there anyway. So yeah, I mean there, I mean there's you know the 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 wacko conspiracy theory bullshit and, right, and right. fake news and hate speech that could all go under not commercially. They could define that as not commercially viable. But you know my my dreams of someday having a YouTube channel that might support me are now gone. So <laughs> yeah, well. There will be, you know, I mean, people obviously are looking at Vimeo and other places with constitutional where law professor from the, the University of Wisconsin, David Schwartz, today. That will still support people just making cool stuff for, for other people, you know. So, yeah. and, uh, so it might not be YouTube, but who knows? We'll, so we'll see. We'll see. December 10th, this goes into effect officially. So, yes, we'll find out. I guess that's all the news we can handle today. I'm Laura Peters, I'm from Amnesty International, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hello, 
We at the Leftscape would like to thank everyone who has reached out with sympathy and support for Mary after the recent passing of her husband, Alan Seamock. Friends of Mary and Alan's began a GoFundMe page to help pay the enormous bills for Alan's hospital stay. That GoFundMe is still open for those who would like to help Mary with all the expenses associated with this very difficult time. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at bit.ly slash help Alan. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash help Alan. Thank you. So we did our very first live stream. Yes, um, Robin and me. Last week. Yep. <laughs> yep, yep. And yeah, sorry I, I couldn't be there. It looked like you were having fun. <laughs> it was fun. Did you watch us? Uh, <laughs> I, real- I got to see a bit, but then I got interrupted. I was in the hospital and nurses were coming in and stuff. Uh, and so. well, if we got to tr- cheer you up in the hospital, it was totally worth it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I was at I was at PhilCon in Cherry Hill, New Jersey at the Crown Plaza Hotel and Robin doesn't live that far away. So we all gathered in my hotel room and Robin brought lots of alcohol, which I <laughs> proceeded to consume on camera. <laughs> yeah, that, that was fun. I wonder if that, no, we hadn't, you hadn't really, I was wondering if that contributed to why the text became reversed that we sent out. I have no idea, but yes. Yeah. The, the text, probably the did. text was, I, I don't know. I had my laptop. I don't think you'd had anything before that. I had not. I had not had any alcohol. So I, I don't know if I managed to just hit the the sequence of keys to make the text go backwards. But my goodness, it was really. So, just so our audience knows, though, our listeners know, Wendy is a lightweight. <laughs> I am. I am a lightweight. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a cheap date. Yes, that's mm-hmm. the phrase. Um, but uh, you can watch this live stream right now on Facebook on our Leftscape page. And I think it will be there until some of one, one or more of us decides, all right, we've seen this enough and they take, we take it down because it'll just be up there and you can watch it. Uh, And uh, we kind of go through our show and, um, and we drink (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) and we talk about our, our new Patreon. Yes. Yeah. We sort of went through the different, um, tears that we have and um why we why we're excited about it and yeah. um you and know. Why, why we need to do it <laughs> and yeah. uh, and and it's still around so you if you uh would like to have us do longer segments that are patreon exclusive uh join us on patreon and you can hear us talk even longer <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah so it's just patreon.com slash leftscape for that and um, I'm just curious, like, what you've learned about doing video. Is there anything that you, um, you want to do differently? You want to? Oh, probably. I haven't really watched it yeah. uh, since since we recorded it because I haven't been home long enough with, uh, with the bandwidth. I I might. I, I sometimes I just don't like watching stuff I've done yeah, <laughs> like yeah. ever. Yeah, you know? Everybody's like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I would probably like to be better prepared. <laughs> I think you know yeah. doing it again. Um, you know, with 
and not just not just with the content that we were talking about, but like having better lighting and and maybe a, <laughs> um, you know, having other people. Uh, I tried to get my my husband on camera, but he was really being camera shy and mostly hiding in the bathroom the whole time we were talking. <laughs> so. Yeah, I definitely I don't know why I learned... he's camera shy because he's so good looking. I don't know why he's camera shy. I don't know. Yeah. I learned that I really like doing that. I had never, you know, I have been um, live streamed when I was like performing and it just makes me extremely nervous. Because all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I'm live on Facebook right now. I better not fuck up, right? <laughs> you know? But and then, then you have to learn to take a leap of faith. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, it's fine. It's just fine. It's just different than it used to be that if you had a bad show in Poughkeepsie, no one else is going to see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, that's, that's the pre-cell phone days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, so it makes me a little nervous, but but it's fine. I'm getting used to video because we're kind of, we are kind of, uh, we're on all the time in some ways with social media, you know? Yeah. But I really like, I really love doing this, first of all. I just became like, oh my God, I want to make videos every week now, you know? <laughs> so it was it was fun. I think we had a really easy flow. Yeah, I mean, if I was doing it, I would want somebody who's not on camera, who's like managing like the live chat going on. Mm. Yeah, know? that would be a good thing to have. Because we couldn't really read what people were typing until we like loomed right into the camera so we could get. Yeah, yeah I noticed yeah. that 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 kind of <laughs> broke the flow. Yeah, well, that's sort of typical. I'm used to seeing people do videos like that, oh, so okay. I was I was fine with it. But, okay. but, but I can see that. Yeah, if we I've had also been on live streams uh, with artists, so you're not really seeing their faces because they're they're streaming um, their their screen where they're drawing, mm -hmm. and they have somebody on. And, but they're talking, and and the, and the, there's a few people, and uh, actually there's multiple screens, and three artists are doing like a drawing of they're each drawing the same thing or something like that, and uh, there would be a fourth person who's managing the chat. So uh, they would read the text out loud and then the, then people would comment on that live, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, more interactive too. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and I would like to do interactive live streams, um, mm -hmm. which would mean our listeners would have to actually tune in at while we're doing it and not afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll always have some of both, you know, cause a lot of people have watched it since we broadcast it. Yeah, too, and we so can also fun. do them on Patreon. So, um, mm -hmm. that might happen in the future once yes, yes. our patron, I should put that down as our goals. Once we get like, you know, 50 patrons, we'll do a live stream or something like that. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So, cool. Well, so sign exciting. up. So I don't have to see us more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Patreon.com slash leftscape. Join today. <laughs> I am with constitutional law professor from the University of Wisconsin, David Schwartz, today, and he has a new book out that uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about. So hi, David. Hi, glad to be here. So tell me uh, about your book. Well, the book is called The Spirit of the Constitution, and it's about a case that was decided 200 years ago that is still extremely important today. It's about a case that tells us what kinds of policies 
Congress can implement under the Constitution. And even though this case is 200 years old, it figured very prominently in the constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act case in 2012, which is being challenged again today as unconstitutional. Uh, the justices on both sides, the, you, you might remember that the, uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was almost struck down as unconstitutional. It came within one vote. It was upheld by a five to four vote. And the justices on both sides of the decision relied on this case called McCulloch versus Maryland, decided in 1819. So it's this year it's celebrating its 200th anniversary. Wow. And it also, as I, I did read the book, it's a, it's a, I found the book to be quite great, well-written and, and it, it takes in, in for me, I'm not a lawyer. So, and I, and I kind of get that this is a lawyerly kind of text, but reading it as a layperson, it provided a lens into the entire history of the United States from a perspective that I'd never really considered before. I found that really fascinating. And, you know, cause you know, you might've read the constitution in, you know, grade school or high school, if you're not a lawyer and you don't really remember, you know, you remember like the first amendment and the second amendment and stuff like that, but you don't remember a lot of other things and, and especially something like the commerce clause. The thing that our constitution does is it divides powers between the national government and the states. And for the entire 230-year history under the Constitution, there's been an ongoing conflict between where the powers of the federal government end and where the powers of the states begin. And today, we're used to the idea that the federal government can address all national problems, which I think is the best interpretation of the Constitution. But early on, and for decades and decades, in late 18th and early 19th and throughout the 19th century in U.S. constitutional history, people who wanted to challenge the power of the federal government to address national problems would rely on these narrow states' rights interpretations of the Constitution. Uh, McCulloch versus Maryland gives a broad interpretation of the Constitution, but that case was reinterpreted in various ways over the years. So in a sense, the book is a history of, I think, the most important debate over the Constitution that you know can be traced by looking at how this very important case, McCulloch versus Maryland, was interpreted differently by different generations. So the, the states' rights versus the federal powers really was based... From what I understand, especially reading your book, um, it was really based on the, the slavery question. So even though the Constitution doesn't mention the word slavery, it contains the original Constitution had certain accommodations, uh, concessions to the slave states. There was a, a fugitive slave clause that required the return of runaway slaves. There was a provision that basically allowed the states of Georgia and South Carolina, which were interested in continuing to import slaves from Africa, to continue to do so until for 20 years, until 1808. And then finally, mm. there was the infamous three-fifths clause, which said that for purposes of counting population to see how many representatives a state would get in Congress and how many electoral votes they would get for the presidency, that slaves would count as three-fifths of a person meaning that slave-owning states would have their population figures expanded 
because of the slaves that they owned and have more voting power in the national government. So all those concessions were made to slavery. And there was an additional thing. The slave states were paranoid about having slavery regulated and perhaps abolished by the national government. And so really from the ratification of the Constitution in 1788 and 1789 until the Civil War, they were intent on interpreting the powers of Congress as narrowly as they could in order hmm. to keep a kind of a bulwark to kind of prevent Congress from trying to regulate or abolish slavery. And this particular ruling helped making slavery illegal or, or was that something else entirely? Well, no, that's the thing. It could have. If it, if it had been applied to um, questions about Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, it could have potentially mm. led to regulation or abolition of slavery. And that was kind of part of the history of this case. Because um, the, the author of the opinion was Chief Justice John Marshall, who was considered to be the first great expounder of the Constitution. He was Chief Justice from 1801 until he died in 1835. Uh, he was nationalistic in his leanings. And um, in, the, in the McCulloch decision, he interpreted the powers of Congress broadly. But his successor, Roger Tawney from Maryland, um, was very pro-slavery and the Supreme Court very quickly after Marshall died, uh, became a pro-slavery court because the presidents who were appointing justices in, um, you know, in the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s tended to be Jacksonian Democrats who believed in slavery and states' rights. And yeah, so, this was back when the Democrats were, this sort of like the parties have flipped in modern times. Absolutely. So and also I want to I want to also uh, amend your or uh, mention that your word of nationalistic meant it's not like what we're talking like modern day nationalism. It's not authoritarian. It's it's just like a national government as opposed to a whole bunch of state governments. Yes, that's a great point. And thanks for that clarification. <laughs> um, when I talk about nationalism in the book, I'm talking about constitutional nationalism, the idea that the federal government has the power to address all national problems. I know that the term nationalism has other uses and other connotations, uh, meaning you know, jingoism, patriotism. That's not what I'm talking about. So the McCulloch decision basically was buried and ignored by the Supreme Court for decades from the time of Marshall's death until well after the Civil War. And in large part, it was because the Supreme Court was trying to protect states' rights to permit slavery in their own states. And and then it, um, so when did it make its resurgence again? Um, I guess it was later, uh, something, because I, I remember reading something um, that Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, was using um, the the case to promote a lot of his social programs or something. Yeah, so... The, the main thread of the book is tracing the constitutional history of this case, but also of the idea of congressional powers throughout the 19th and then the 20th centuries. And 
we got to start with, you, you talked earlier about reading the Constitution. And one of the things that you'll see if you read the Constitution is that there is a listing of powers. In Article 1, Section 8, it says Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to regulate commerce among the states, etc. And there's a, there's a number of powers, 18 in all. And one theory that emerged very early on to try to limit those powers was the idea that the national government, that the federal government was limited to only those enumerated powers, only the powers that are listed. And that was an effort to try to keep the powers of the national government narrow. And because nothing was listed in there to say that Congress could regulate slavery, the slave states wanted to use that theory, that, that, that interpretive argument about limited enumerated powers use it to prevent Congress from regulating slavery. The Constitution doesn't expressly grant the power to regulate slavery, therefore it can't regulate slavery. That's the, the states' rights pro-slavery argument. McCulloch versus Maryland undermined that because what the court said in that case was Congress also has implied powers that aren't expressly listed, powers to carry out the objects of the Constitution. Well, if one of the objects of the Constitution is to regulate interstate commerce, and, and what Marshall said was, thinks is necessary and proper under this last clause in Article One, Section 8 called the Necessary and Proper Clause. Anything that's, Congress can pass a law to do anything necessary and proper to implement its other powers. Necessary and proper to Marshall meant convenient, conducive, reasonably adapted. And so that would give rise to an argument that slavery could have been regulated because what does slavery do? Slavery was primarily a system of agricultural production using slave labor. And the, what was produced would then go on an interstate market and an international market. Agricultural goods like cotton were sent up north to mills in Massachusetts. They were shipped overseas to textile England? mills in, in England. And so that becomes interstate and, and international commerce, which Congress has the power to regulate. Well, in theory, Congress could have passed a law saying, we want to prohibit the interstate shipment of goods made by slaves. And and they, they never did, though. They never I mean, did. They never did. Because in part because the South had sufficient voting power, in part because of this three-fifths clause in uh, Congress, and um, you know tended to have a lot of influence over the presidency. But you know again, because these slave owners were so paranoid about this, they wanted every type of protection they could have, not just in politics but also in constitutional interpretation. Yeah, and so how did? You know, when things after the war, and I'm talking more modern time, in, in modern times, when, for example, Roosevelt wanted to get the New Deal going, is that something that came from the executive branch? Did it come from Congress? Did he put, so how did that, how did that all work? What happened was, obviously, slavery is abolished by the Civil War and the 13th Amendment that that is enacted in 1865 as the Civil War is ending. And, but that didn't make this idea of states' rights go away. And so after the Civil War, 
the idea of states' rights and, and trying to limit the powers of Congress through this narrow interpretation of the powers of Congress returned for two reasons. One is that the Supreme Court started to believe in laissez-faire economics. The other is that- You're going to explain that to that me. Means in a minute. <laughs> okay. The other is that the Supreme Court wanted to basically put the states back in charge, not of slavery this time, but of race relations. And out of that, we get the era of Jim Crow. They now, so the, the federal government dropped the ball again. The, the, the federal government dropped the ball again, but it was mostly the Supreme Court because um, Congress did pass in the 1870s a civil rights law that would have prohibited race discrimination by private businesses. And the court said it was unconstitutional. They basically wanted to return this whole question of race back to the states. But the other thing that the Supreme Court wanted to do is they picked up this idea of so-called laissez-faire economics, which is the idea that government should not be regulating the economy. They should not be regulating businesses. The market should be this self-regulating institution that, you, you know, the, the law and supply and demand will regulate it sufficiently. And yeah, that's, that's always worked out so well. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it hasn't. And um, in the, uh, the end of the 19th century, um, both federal and state legislatures started to realize that. And so Congress enacted the first antitrust law, the Sherman Antitrust Act in the 1880s. And so the court used this idea of limited enumerated powers to strike down those kinds of economic regulations. They held the Sherman Antitrust Act unconstitutional, uh, progressive era laws such as uh, a, a prohibition of child labor that was enacted in 1916. The court struck that down in 1918 as unconstitutional. And this was on the idea that the enumerated powers of Congress did not extend to things like manufacturing and employment. Even though those things seem closely related to commerce, the court said, well, they're not commerce, and so Congress can't regulate them. This turned into a real crisis during the Great Depression, when uh, after Roosevelt's election in 1933, Congress enacted a whole slew of regulatory laws trying to pull the nation out of the economic slump. And the court struck down several of these laws, laws trying to regulate the coal industry, laws trying to regulate wages and prices. The court said these are unconstitutional because Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce, but interstate commerce is simply the buying and selling of goods across state lines. It doesn't include employment or agriculture or manufacturing, which are local matters for the states. And that's where things stood in 1936, when uh, Roosevelt unveiled his famous court packing plan to try to change the composition of the Supreme Court. Okay. And I'm I'm seeing sort of like the uh, like the antithesis of that happening like right now, with with the Republicans trying to stack all of the courts currently. But so yeah, so, so we can bring this up to date in, in contemporary politics <laughs> by pointing out that so McCulloch versus Maryland kind of has a resurgence by 1941 1942. By that time, eight of the nine justices were Roosevelt appointees. They were pro-New Deal. And they found McCulloch versus Maryland to be a useful and important case because it basically 
was deferential to Congress's ability to um, enact necessary and proper laws, that it wasn't strictly limited to its enumerated powers, but that it had implied powers. And so for it could regulate the economy as necessary and proper to the regulation of uh, interstate commerce. And so for more or less the rest of the 20th century, the Supreme Court took a very deferential view and allowed Congress to regulate the economy, address all national problems. And that's why we have, you know, the structure of the government that we have today. We have uh, a national government that can address all economic problems, that can enact welfare legislation, that can enact national health care legislation. But there's a problem. And the problem is that the modern the modern Republican Party is connected to an organization that tries to funnel conservative justices into judicial appointments. The organization is called the Federalist Society. It's it grew out of law schools. The Federalist Society uh, vets all judicial appointments. They suggest nominees to the Republican president and the Republican Senate. And these justices are becoming increasingly aggressive in their judicial philosophy about trying to roll back the permissive attitude of the Supreme Court toward economic regulation. And my concern today is that once again, they're going to start ignoring this case, McCulloch versus Maryland, and intervening in the way they almost did in the Affordable Care Act case. One of the, mm. one of the greatest problems facing democracy today is this extreme economic inequality that we have in our society. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, we have some, you know, policy proposals that are being talked about to try to rein this in, you know, from revitalizing progressive taxation to um, regulating corporate speech to, you know, other kinds of laws that would try to rein in inequality. And, you know, my concern is that this new wave of conservative justices is, is looking for arguments that will allow the Supreme Court to put up roadblocks to that kind of economic equality legislation. In doing so, I think they're going to be, you know, this, they're going to be kind of soft peddling this case, McCulloch versus Merrill. <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah. I just, you know, I read in the news how the Senate and the president have been stacking the lower courts with with judges who, like the American Bar Association, are saying are unqualified to hold the position, and and that always scares me because I, I think it's uh, the the lower courts are, are basically with the pool of where they pull up Supreme Court justices when when openings arise. Is that correct? Yes. And you know because the Supreme Court can only hear you know they hear they decide something like. 80 cases per year. So they rely heavily on the lower courts to implement their rulings. And that gives the lower courts a lot of power. Yeah. So it I really think the matters. Last... It really matters who is in the judiciary, uh, the federal judiciary at all levels. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a scary time we live in now. Are there things that regular people can do to help influence how these guys are, are appointed? Or is this like, I guess it does it come, what is it that, that a regular person can do? Is it just go vote for your senators? Well, obviously voting, you know, the judges are appointed, they're nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And so 
those are both offices that have some responsiveness to the electorate. Obviously, who you vote for for president is going to have a significant impact on who gets appointed to the courts. And the only other thing that can be done, let's say, between elections is is writing to your senators to, um, you know, express your views on judicial appointments. Okay. So, yeah, we have to voting and Senate and, and bothering your, your politicians who are supposed to be representing you and not, you know, their corporate overlords or the Russians or whoever is paying for them these days. So to everybody, this book is called The Spirit of the Constitution. Uh, the subtitle is John Marshall and the 200-Year Odyssey of McCulloch versus Maryland by David Schwartz. It's available uh, on Amazon and probably uh, your, your college bookstores. <laughs> I found it to be a fascinating read. And uh, I want to thank David. I want to thank you very much for joining us this today. Thank you. Hey, Robin Renee here. I am happy to say that I plan to hit the road in 2020. I've got some new music in the works and I'm looking forward to playing more gigs than I have in a while. If you'd like to see me at your venue along the East Coast or in the Midwest, or can reach out to your favorite club or listening room, get in touch. You can always reach me and hear my music through robinrenee.com. Thanks a lot. Can't wait to see you. So last week, uh, one of my favorite bands was in Philadelphia, Steely Dan, mm. and I oh. did not go because I was been trying to uh, just be conscious of money and stuff. And I've seen them a lot of times, you know, um, but I wish it could have worked out, but it didn't this time. However, I have seen them perform a lot, as I mentioned, and they did um, all of Asia one time which is really one of my, it's absolutely in my top five albums of all time. Um, I'm not sure where I'd rank it exactly, but it's, it's really one of my absolute favorites. And it was really great to hear them perform every song because it's something that I know so deeply and, and every note is like in my, it's like in my deep memory somewhere, you know? And they perform it in the order that they did it on the album too. Yes, exactly. You know? yep, yep. That's important. It, it was really cool. And they, they did that. And I think in Philadelphia, they also did, um, which other albums did they do? Um, Gaucho, which would have been interesting because that's not really one of my favorites of theirs, but it would have been interesting to hear it live all the way through, but um, maybe one time, maybe sometime if they do it again. But I just was thinking about this concept of bands who get together and perform whole works like that and how important the whole the whole album has been for me, especially growing mm. up and some of the things that are really classic to me. Um, so I just want to say that that is awesome. Okay. I, I, I don't mean to change the subject, but I need to do a sidebar because I, and then you do mean to change the subject. I do. I do mean, I need a sidebar. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, I thought when Steely Dan first formed, they were based, they were not a touring band. They were, no, yeah, band. they were a studio band. Yeah. Wrong. 
Grom? They, they were, they, they, when they first formed, they were a touring band. Okay. And they had Skunk Baxter and David Palmer and, you know, it was a bunch of people in the actual band. Okay. <laughs> um, but then they stopped touring in 1974. And then they did these amazing studio albums, you know, um, and then came back weirdly in 1993 and they started playing again. Okay. I said, see, I was unaware of them before their amazing studio albums. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, but it is interesting. I mean, you know, the, well, the first time I saw them play was like a weird miracle because it was just something that wasn't it was just understood that they they don't play live it's not a thing that happens you know <laughs> and um donald fagan did the rock and soul review and that was wild to see him live with a bunch of sort of an all-star lineup and um and then the next year steely dan came out and played so mm -hmm. yeah it actually is kind of cool especially to even hear that music played live because it wasn't even intended for that when it was first made you know okay no, but, I, I I used to hear Steely Dan live like at hotels with like the hotel band. Oh, <laughs> that's Steely why, Mike. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. It was I was with somebody and we were at a hotel and we're we heard people playing Steely Dan in like the lounge and that would that's like the only reason we went into the bar in the first place just to hear the band. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were like a Steely Dan mm. cover band. So interesting wow yeah <laughs> but yeah but I, i've seen that which is great i've seen devo play all of are we not men which was oh, fantastic yeah, that would be good too yeah. it was good and it was it was it was so organic and interesting and and um it was kind of funny to see the band be rusty on certain songs that they just weren't really in their repertoire typically anymore Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so the audience could fill in lyrics that M Mark Mothersbaugh was forgetting <laughs> in some moments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, it was a kind of very real experience. That was neat. Mm. Um, and most recently I saw um, Adam Ant play all of Friend or Foe. Wow. Which was really fantastic. Oh, and the other thing is like once they finish the album, then they will play a bunch of sort of you know, other material, either greatest hits or deep cuts or something. And um, it's, it's very, I don't know, I, you know, I want to say it's a lost art and I don't know that that's true because at least my, the albums that have the, have had the biggest impact on me are like whole works. Like they feel very much designed to be an, a single experience. Right. And I know like, that for at least some time, some of the time, more recently, people think in terms of just like, what's the hit? And then whatever else is on the album, it's not necessarily, or there's compilations or there's just, it's not necessarily as cohesive. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, and like, they can just be shuffled too. That's a, I hate the shuffle feature. Uh, but I, mean, I don't mind it. It's just a different, it's just a different thing, you know? Yeah. I, know. I guess I see, I, I often hear uh reasons for why one song is going into the other mm. in, in my mind anyway mm -hmm. yeah and when i plan the the recordings i've made i plan things to flow specific there is a reason you know yeah. there's a, either a sonic reason or a theme reason or something yeah yeah um, I've never well, yeah, made like want, a rock opera thing or something like that <laughs> obvious but you want but, the album to take you on a journey yeah if you just it. put it on and let it play yeah, exactly. And, and the one thing I've noticed with the digitization of 
albums like the older albums like the steel like steely dan that when they when they uh when they get digitized they cut the songs weird it's it's like there's a gap even though on the like if you were playing the record it would flow right like uh let me give you like yes um there's a couple of songs on uh close to the edge that don't really have a musical break between the songs they kind of just go one into the other it's or or like it's like the next song is like the third movement of like a three mm. movement piece and then when you get it on cd or if it's on your ipod or whatever um there's a break there's a there's a, a they a sonic break or the song cuts off and then it'll you know and if you have it like on a playlist or something it'll cut off like before you think the song's really supposed to end and then you're like listening to a different band and you're going wait what the hell happened oh uh, right because they want to have a sp a way for people to skip to track three if or yeah. Track whatever. yeah 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 Interesting. yeah which like on the vinyl you're just you're listening to that I'd whole song <laughs> yeah. but you listen to that whole 20 minutes and you know there's no break so huh yeah yeah for me i think sometimes the the albums that i love the most are written to be like a, an entire piece you know uh very intentionally and other mm -hmm. times i don't know if it's that or if it's just that the the order that it happened to become is so um so imprinted on me yeah it feels well, I mean, really powerful to hear that because like you kind of know what's coming and you anticipate the next kind of big exactly or something like that exactly it's like you've you've worn the grooves on that record down so far that it that's how those things have to occur yeah yeah that those musical events have to occur in that particular sequence otherwise it's like weird and messed up right right i noticed one time when i was figure modeling i was just bored one time and i said i know i'll listen to asia <laughs> i literally i could just turn on the album and it just played in your head, in my you didn't head. Have to, okay so you've got you've got a musical hard drive in your brain i think i do oh that's really for certain <laughs> for certain notes, yeah so do you have any albums that you would love to hear performed straight through or have you heard some no i don't go to enough concerts to experience that um i'm trying to think you know i it's either it's either i'm not as familiar with the people's work or if it's like an older band like i did see you know like emerson lake and palmer and i don't think they went through a whole album or went an exhibition no no oh. it was no it was it, it, i saw them live you know and they open and that band you're not fond of open for them oh. <laughs> and uh we can say the name of the band is dream dream theater, theater. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah and that, it was Dream Theater that was playing as a warm-up uh, uh, for ELP. Steely Dan. As, oh, for Steely Dan too? No, no, not for Steely Dan. As war they they appeared at the theater where I work, and oh. while they were warming up, they were playing Steely Dan music. Oh, they were playing like, Steely Dan as yeah, their okay. warm-up music. Okay. Yeah. Huh. I mean, they're very talented musicians, but yes, I, they they have a lot of notes in their songs, and that's yes. the, the too many notes. Too many is, notes is is, uh, <laughs> is the, has been a complaint ever more than one person. Yes. Uh, um. That and and I and I did notice when I did see them live that their keyboard player was using an iPod iPad for uh, his sheet music, mm. and I. 
and I have to, you know, for for a while, I thought, you know, you were supposed to be able to, you were supposed to be off book when you play live. Um, but apparently, you know, once I saw Billy Joel using sheet music, I kind of said, all right, if he, if he gets to use sheet music, then anybody else gets to use sheet music. Yeah, you know? I think that's valid. You know, I mean, people who make speeches have... Have notes, cues or notes or, you know, or yeah, teleprompter or something like that. And yeah, uh, at a classical concert, the, the people have music in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because you have to count the 65 rests, the 65 measures of rest before you come in yeah. So, yeah. with your symbol, <laughs> ting, right? or, or the triangle flare. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I know what you mean, Wendy, because I definitely have what, like, if I have a song that's relatively new, I will sometimes want lyrics with me and, and I don't always want to do it that way. But sometimes if I'm presenting something new, I'll just say, all right, this is a new song. I don't exactly know it, but I'm going to try it, you know? Yeah, well, I, you know, I've told you the story about where I completely blanked on everything. And these are songs I wrote and songs I had been playing for years and they were gone. Like... <laughs> Bring a security blanket. Like if you just bring the CD cover with the song titles or something. Nah, well, it's, I since I'm not really performing anymore, it's not really a, a big deal. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't worry about it. And if I was, I would use my freaking iPad. I have a I have a holder for it now that would fit on a mic stand, and I have no shame now. So oh, you know, cool. even my husband has to use lyric books now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's been playing since he's been 17. So. It happens. Yeah. And we all get old, huh? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to see Gary Wilson play all of the You Think You Really Know Me album one day. I think that would be a dream concert for me. (laughs) Not to tell him that. (laughs) I would like to hear the White album. That would be cool. I know a band that played it. Well, uh, what was it? They were called Fab Foe or something. The, uh, the I don't know that they did that. Yeah, they're around. They're around New Jersey. You'll you okay. can see them. But um, no, um, the whole Earth Ensemble when I was going to Livingston College played every Beatles song in order uh, in order wow. of recording. Wow! Like it was just like an all night concert kind of thing. Wow! Yeah, it would be like a week long concert, wouldn't it? So uh, I assume they had more than one singer. They had all kinds of singers. They had. I would yeah, not want to have to sing every Beatles song all one night. Yeah, no, no, no. They had different people coming in and out and do with different instruments to sort of approximate oh, okay. all the different sounds. And and I didn't see all of it. I mean, I heard, I heard all the early stuff and everyone was dancing around and having fun <laughs> and everything. And when I came back in the morning, they were just starting Abbey Road. Wow. And it was just really memorable to, uh, to hear my friend Mark, um, singing oh darling actually yeah i think that's what i heard i think i heard oh darling first yeah hmm. and it was uh it was and you could just tell i mean they were very tired and it was just an extreme <laughs> experiment and it's so amazing but i didn't hear the white album because i was I, I actually slept so <laughs> but it's kind of has cool. pink floyd done this because i would i would like to hear you know like dark side of the moon all the way through oh yeah that would be nice i think one of the members may have done that. Mm. They're not really playing as Pink Floyd, but their their separate camps are doing things. Yeah, I mean that's that's the one that's one of the albums that I don't like listening to individual songs on. 
That would be annoying. Yeah. I mean, you, you, know? you hear it. I mean, once in a while like, from the radio or whatever. Well, yeah, play, like, like, tune. They, they play like money a lot. Yeah. You know, or, but uh, yeah. But, but the whole thing is a work. A yeah, very intentional to, work. It needs to be like that one needs to be played yeah. through, you know, like that. So. Have you done the thing with uh, Wizard of Oz? No, <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I have not either. It's hard to set up. Yeah. I have not. However, however, I inadvertently, I was uh, converting by hand. Well, not by hand. I had, I bought equipment to convert our home movies to videotape. And I know Mary had used to do this for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, she had a business doing this, but I, <clears throat> I bought like this uh, mirror thing. Mm -hmm. So you project into the, into one, box, one part one of it. Mirror. And then it like flips it flips it 90 degrees then you have a video camera recording it um i did that for my home movies and since there was the video camera was capturing sound i put on um a whole bunch of andreas volenweider who's a harpist and does a lot of like i guess you would he's in the new age rack but i don't yeah, consider yeah. it new age um uh, i put on his his music as like background music and and it was just completely random but it seemed to fit the video, the visuals. So mm -hmm. that was really weird. <laughs> cool. But it wasn't words, right? It was just the sonic sort of. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's instrumental music. Okay. So yeah. yeah. But the mood, the mood of the music seemed to, it, it's not constant throughout the whole thing. I love that. Uh -huh. uh, but it seemed to fit, or at least it informed, it, it informed and added a level of something to the, to the home movies. So That's cool. True. Yeah, I thought that was I was I was amused by that, especially you know my brother remarked on it when I when I gave him a tape and he was watching it. 